Gotcha. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. President, the Family Research Council, great to be with you and an honor to have you joining us this evening. Always glad to be your host here on Friday evenings. Hope you've had a fantastic week. And we're honored to have you on the bus, bus with us this evening. We've got a great program lined up for you. So let me give you some of the highlights that we'll be covering today. Let's start with this clip. As the Secretary described, this is a hemispheric challenge that demands hemispheric solutions. Working with our neighbors in the region, we can and will reduce the number of migrants who reach our southern border. Incredible problems admitted. That was Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas during a press conference with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken as they were discussing what they are calling sweeping new actions to manage regional migration. Well, that's going to be very important. As we all know, the May 11th end to Title 42 is quickly approaching. And as a result, House Republicans have advanced some legislation to protect the border which, by the way, was a crucial promise that many midterm election campaigns made last fall. Congressman Rich McCormick, who now serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, will be joining me momentarily to discuss that. And in congressional testimony yesterday, the new IRS commissioner, Danny Werfel, tried to assure lower-income Americans that they're not going to face increased audits, at least not yet. The audit rate will not go above that rate for, for years to come, because for the next several years, at least, we're going to be focused on the work that we're doing with the highest income filers. Yeah, I wonder how much we can believe of that. You know, listen, folks, you probably have heard by now there have been 87,000 new IRS agents that the Democrats want to hire with some 80 billion dollars of funding. Uh, this is uh, going to be very interesting to see what happens with that. We'll be talking with Heritage Foundation tax policy expert Preston Brasher about that critically important information. Then there is a major rift that is growing in the global Anglican community, which is, by the way, the third largest Christian denomination. You don't want to miss that issue. We'll be speaking with FRC's David Clawson about that topic. And then this one, I assure you, you don't want to miss this. The CDC is now reporting that almost 25%, 25% of high school students now identify with at least one letter of the ever-growing LGBTIA plus alphabet. 25% of high school students. I want to know, how does the government get this information? How is this information used? Well, Irene Erickson, she's a senior research analyst at the Institute for Research and Evaluation, will be joining me to discuss this and how the CDC is politicizing so much of their information. You do not want to miss that discussion. But just by way of reminder, if you do miss any portion of today's program, uh, you can certainly catch this and other archive programs at our website, which, of course, is TonyPerkins.com. TonyPerkins.com. Of course, there's a lot of other details there and plenty of action items on the website. So be sure 
to check it out, TonyPerkins.com. All right, let's go on to our first topic now. This week, House Republicans advanced some legislation to increase border security. They are very much aware and concerned that the May 11th deadline for the end of Title 42 is quickly approaching. And so they're putting forth some legislation to, frankly, try to force the Biden administration to enforce the law, to secure the border, and to reduce the illegal flow of immigration. That bill should reach the floor maybe not next week, maybe the week after, first week of May, some sometime along that time frame. And, you know, the Biden administration is already facing intense criticism for its mismanagement of the border. And the question now is, will the president actually work with Republicans to implement a solution? Well, joining me now to discuss this and more is Congressman Rich McCormick. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. He represents the 6th Congressional District of Georgia. Congressman McCormick, Dr. McCormick, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to see you, Jody. You're looking good. Hey, you're looking good, too, my friend. Always good to see you and uh, appreciate, very proud of the work that you're doing. All right, Dr. McCormick, let's begin with this border legislation that House Republicans are seeking to advance here probably the week after next. Uh, what can you tell us about the basics of what's in that bill? So we just reviewed it with my legislative uh, team today. As a matter of fact, your former legislative director is now mine. Uh, so a great conservative, understands the bills very well. We were just talking about how they were going to uh, basically demand that we have the wall completed by 2028. Uh, I thought it was interesting because it's already been funded. Congress has already deliberated this before and said we need to have a wall. We need to have a border security. We need to have a sovereign nation. One of the things that I want to see to put a little meat in this is that we actually have a year-by-year -year minimum completion rate. I hate that Congress has to come up with a budget every year, and, and a lot of the budget is downstream. In other words, uh, if something's going to be completed five years from now, uh, that doesn't really give us teeth if next year we can redo the budget and get rid of that requirement altogether. I think we need to have a year-by-year -year requirement, not just a five-year or a 10-year plan like we do with so many of the budgetary things we do up here. Sounds like a good idea. Um, well, listen, let's, let's, let's go into some of the issues that are taking place on the border. Uh, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me, this administration, how many top-level members of this administration have not even been to the border, and yet they are continuing to uh, say it's secure and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, the Biden administration an announced yesterday that it plans to establish an immigration processing center, a series of centers, if you will, all throughout Latin America. And they're claiming that these regional centers are somehow going to help slow down the number of migrants coming to the U.S. Do you agree with that? Not at all. I think the reason they don't go to the border is because ignorance is bliss. They don't want to know about the problem. They don't really want to solve the problem. If they thought that these immigrants were coming here to vote Republican, they'd be standing on your desk right now. They'd be screaming at the tops of their lungs that, oh, look at the crime that's coming here. Look at the drugs that are coming here to, that kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. Uh, look at the, the disease process. Look at the overwhelmed hospital systems. Look at the, the burden on the taxpayer who has to actually take this. Look at the lack of a sovereign border. They'd be saying all those things that they thought they were coming here to vote 
Republican. However, what they think is that they buy the vote correctly if they make them into liberals by getting them used to getting handouts, then they will continue to expand their control of government into the future by expanding the most uh, reliant on the government, which is going to basically reinforce a socialist slash communist government system into the future. And that's what's so frightening about this. I actually, uh, to go on with this, I've got a couple of clips that I want to play for you and get your reaction. Uh, this first one is uh, Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, he made this claim about their so-called comprehensive plan that they've developed and that they plan on executing. Listen to this. We are building lawful pathways for people to come to the United States without resorting to the smugglers. At the same time, we are imposing consequences on those who do not use those pathways and instead irregularly migrate to our southern border. This plan has proven effective. <laughs> this plan has proven effective. I mean, come on, I, you know, I, if, if, I, if I didn't burst out crying, I, I'd burst out laughing with this. This is absolute absurdity. What, what, give me your, your basic thoughts with this. Well, this has got to be the worst plan. First of all, he's not selling to anybody because anybody who lives down in Texas knows why we're actually converting Democrats over Republicans because they understand, even people who have immigrated here from Mexico understand that there has to be a sovereign border. People understand, we're right now having a a incredible springtime of, of Republicans who came from the Hispanic community, who are female, who are true conservatives, who want the American dream, who want people to come here legally, not illegally. Everything they do rewards illegal behavior. Let's get that straight. They're not rewarding legal behavior. As a matter of fact, they punish it. They make it very difficult to get here legally and very easy to get here illegally. Um, everything they've done has made this worse. This is one of the worst uh, border. Actually, it, I would say it is the worst uh, border crisis we've ever had in America. And it keeps on getting, uh, I, I love the way, the fact that it's getting highlighted by all the problems we have in society. I just hate the fact that we have to be burdened with it and that they're not doing anything other than say that it's good policy and that it's working. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's all talk, but there's nothing behind it. Uh, I, I want to play this one more clip and then I want to go to another topic if we can. But uh, as is typical with the administration, they blame everybody else. And Mayorka says it's all Congress's fault. Look at this clip. But we cannot do everything that we need to do until Congress provides the needed resources and reforms. We call on Congress to provide the resources we need to continue our work. Yeah, let's talk right, about that. Talk. Yeah. What, what, what resources they're asking for is more people to process the illegal immigrants to come here to encourage that that same process of bringing encouraging more and more people to come here to be a burden on or say i'm not against legal immigration but what i'm against is encouraging people to come here just because and, and the fact is they just want more money to process more people to come here which is going to just create a bigger flow which means your your new people that you're going to put all this money into will be overburdened immediately because they're like, oh, look, the floodgates are open. We're just going to keep on flowing. It is not a good process throwing money at this without having a sovereign border, throwing money at it without having a solid plan is ridiculous. They need to follow the laws we have right now. Stop Absolutely. trying to just circum circumnavigating our laws. Absolutely. All right, if we can, let's switch gears. I know our time is kind of getting uh, past us here, but you serve on the Select Committee on the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and you guys heard testimony this week from Randy Reichardt, the president of the American Federation of Teachers. What did you learn in that uh, hearing? 
Well, first of all, she's a political hack. Let, let's face it, I, as, as the only physician in Congress who's actually treated thousands of coronavirus patients, it was amazing to me that I got censored and she was actually able to affect CDC policy. <laughs> as a non-scientist, somebody who basically invested $60 million into political activity, she is absolutely a political hack. She didn't care to get the teachers back into the classroom. She knew it was affecting children in a negative way. She showed no intention of actually following real science, but actually wanted to manipulate science so they could do exactly what they wanted. And they didn't want to take any chances, even though they knew they were essential. They were essential employees, just like an ER doc, like myself. I had to go to work. I had to see sick patients. They weren't talking about symptomatic children. They were talking about asymptomatic children just trying to learn and actually them coming to school and actually doing their job rather than staying home and avoiding the children. We've got about 45 seconds left. And just for our viewers and listeners, that's why I refer to you as Dr. McCormick. You probably saw thousands of patients during the pandemic, and now you're serving in Congress. What you said, I think, is extremely important. You, a doctor, a professional, a scientist, you know what you're talking about. And you were censured while these teachers did not go by the science, but they had the listening ear and were able basically to establish policy, about 30 seconds. They were absolutely, matter of fact, because of their political contributions, how powerful they are, they were actually able to influence CDC policy. You could literally see verbatim wording from things that they submitted to them. Uh, this is ridiculous when we see an outside influencer of somebody who's just basically political and not scientific, not actually benefiting the people they're supposed to be serving. If, if I made legislation that benefited me instead of a patient, it would be a bad idea. They, they were actually advocating for themselves with no consideration for children, and, and I thought that was just unforgivable. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Rich McCormick, Congressman Rich McCormick, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. Thanks, Joe. All right, friends, stay tuned. Much more straight ahead about the IRS. You don't want to miss it. We'll be back. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss, an honor to have you joining us this Friday evening. All right, in testimony before Congress this week, the new IRS Commissioner, Danny Werfel, uh, tried to assure low-income Americans that they had nothing to worry about as it relates to potential audits, at least not for the time being. Let's play clip four. The audit rate will not go above that rate for, for years to come because for the next several years at least, we're going to be focused on the work that we're doing with the highest income filers. All right, friends, I don't know about you, but there's uh, some disturbing uh, information in there. At least let's dig a little bit deeper into it. You know, how many years, how many years before all of us need to worry, especially all of us conservatives, need to worry about new audit increases? Two years, three years? Uh, and again, remember that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act had $80 billion for 87,000 new IRS agents. I mean, that's enough to fill a huge football stadium. And given the agencies, the IRS's history of discrimination against conservatives and religious organizations, uh, does anyone really doubt what these 87,000 new agents are designed to do? Well, let's dig deeper in this. Joining me now to discuss this and more is Preston Brashers. He's a senior tax policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Preston, welcome to Washington Watch. Appreciate you coming on with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jody. Well, listen, the uh, IRS commissioner, as you've just heard, he was at Congress this week already requesting an additional $1.8 billion next year. That is on top of the $80 billion in extra spending that the Democrats passed last year. Give me your thoughts on the money, 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 money. What is all this for? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you brought it out in the in the clip that you showed that 
they're not expecting to increase the audit rate on middle income taxpayers for now. Uh, and, but it was the very clear implication from not just that clip, but other clips during that, that testimony that they've kind of moved away from the, this idea that they that none of these audits will ever or these additional funds will ever be used to to increase audits on the middle class. They're just not going to do that for now. And there's there's a chart that's shown in the in the in the testimony a couple of times that just shows exactly exactly what what it sounds like they're saying, and that is the enforcement dollars just shoot up over the course of time, so that by the end of the 2020s or into the 2030s, the amount of uh, funding for for enforcement just goes through the roof, while taxpayer services and uh, and business system modernization technology those those go literally down to none zero of the additional dollars. They'll have the the base appropriations, but none of the additional appropriations from this from the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, uh, before I left Congress a few months ago, the uh, the IRS was bottlenecked a year and a half on tax returns on, on thousands, tens of thousands of, of Americans, and and none of this money is going to help that. Here's my concern, President, and I want to get your your feedback. The IRS has a history, and I dealt with it when I was there on the Oversight Committee in Congress. They have a history of targeting conservatives, religious organizations, are we correct, do you think, to at least anticipate that these additional 87,000 agents are, it's only going to increase uh, at least the potential of them targeting conservatives, isn't it? It certainly increases the potential. I mean, when you have, here, here's where I'm a little bit concerned, is when you have so many uh, additional people that you could hire, and, and to put it into perspective, uh, we currently have about uh, 30, it's in the 30,000 um, range, 30 to 35,000 of full-time employees that are in the enforcement side of, of, of the IRS. And if you look at their graphs of the funding, what you see is that the, the, the funding will triple for enforcement by the end of 2031. And so if, if that were to happen, you're, you're talking about a huge number of additional uh, auditors. And so, what exactly are they going to be doing? They, 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 you know, they were originally telling us that they wouldn't be auditing the the, the middle class. They'd only focus on the four, the people making four hundred thousand. They're very wishy washy now as to what exactly they're going to be doing. But if you have a lot of people that are that are there, and there's not a clear directive as to what they should be doing, uh, then then I think that opens the door for some some concerning things that you, you have people that have nothing to do. Well, maybe they find something to do. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, you know, these 87,000 have to do something right. And uh, we don't really know what they're going to do. But what we do know is that our government right now is increasingly buying into woke policies. They are increasingly becoming more aggressive to political opponents, be it pro-life or be it whomever. We're watching this over and over and over uh, in so many. And you know, we are watching, and he was under oath, by the way. He was under oath. So really, he had to say what other Democrats have not been able to say in their speeches, and that is, just for now, as you brought up, for now, we're not going to increase audits on lower-income Americans. But obviously, I believe that's going to change. But here's where I'd like your input. We, we, we are watching the weaponization of our government. We now have a special uh, committee looking into that, and they are finding horrifying, in my opinion, uh, outcomes. The IRS is now arming federal employees with actual guns. Uh, Commissioner Werfel said we're going to be hiring a thousand, more than a thousand, armed IRS agents. 
What do we know about this? Can you tell us more? Yeah, so that, that's been a, a point of uh, contention for them that they there was there, there's a distinction that they want to draw that they want to say that the auditors are not the ones that are that are going to be carrying the weapons, and so that that's the point that they they try to say when they, as to why they have previously claimed that no one no they weren't going to be hiring additional uh, armed agents, and so yes, of course, not everyone out there, not every person that they're hiring at the IRS is going to be carrying a gun, uh, but but. It is part of what the IRS does. They're, they 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 have a, they have agents out there that are that are armed and that, that engage in criminal criminal investigations. And so, uh, so if you are concerned that that your group might be viewed by the government as as criminal for 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 some reason, then maybe there is some concern there. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've got right here one of the original. Uh, job post that they had and it said you must be willing to use force up to and including use of deadly force. I mean, this this was all the, the IRS website looking for applicants. To, it's just uh, chilling to me. Uh, listen, uh, Preston, I want to thank you for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more as uh, we get more information on this, but thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks so much, Jody. You're very welcome. All right, folks, uh, listen, you want to stay tuned for more. We've got a lot more straight ahead. 85% of Anglican leaders are rejecting the head bishop of the third largest Christian denomination. We'll give you all the details of that straight up after the break. Stay. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org worldview. Again, go to frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss, and hope you're having a fantastic Friday. And we're honored to have you joining us on Washington Watch. All right, the fourth Global Anglican Future Conference 
met last week in Kigali, Rwanda. This is a gathering of conservative Anglicans, and they literally called for a resetting of the worldwide Anglican communion, uh, communion after the Church of England, under the direction of the Archbishop of Canterbury, voted to approve the blessing of same-sex couples. Well, the conference, which represents 85% of the global Anglican communion worldwide, released a statement. It's now known as the Kigali Commitment, and it condemns the Archbishop's move as blasphemy and declares that he and the Church of England abdicated their leadership of the Anglican Communion. So what does all of this mean? Well, here to discuss it further with me is David Clawson. He's the director of FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome back to Washington Watch. Uh, good to see you, Congressman. Great to be back. Well, it's great to see you as well. All right, explain anything that I've missed here. Uh, what's going on with the Anglican Church? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Jody, to say that this, this is a massive story. Uh, so the Anglican Communion is the third largest denomination uh, in, in the world, uh, uh, right under the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. There's about 85 million Anglicans. And so it's, it's, this is a, a massive development. The, the context of this is back in February, uh, the Church of England, uh, which is kind of seen as the mother church, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury is kind of seen as uh, uh, the, the first among equals uh, in the Anglican Communion. Uh, under his leadership, the Church of England in their February Synod uh, voted to allow the Church of England to bless same-sex couples. And so they, they didn't go as far as saying they would uh, officiate same-sex weddings in Anglican churches, but they did vote to allow Anglican priests to bless same-sex couples. This was received by the international press the way it uh, should be received as a profound change in church uh, teaching. And the immediate backlash in conservative com Anglican communions around the world, Jody, was that this is a massive departure from historic Christian faith, from historic Anglican teaching. And this backlash to the decision back in February resulted in this statement released last week called the Kigali Commitment, which is a massive rebuke. Uh, to the Church of England and to their leader, uh, Justin Welby. Well, I, uh, I am very dear, one of my very dear friends is uh, Archbishop of North America, the second Archbishop of the Anglican Church, Foley Beach. I actually reached out to him today, uh, and unfortunately we were not able to talk. I'd love to, but he, he has written a rebuke himself. In fact, he spoke at the conference uh, the other day and is literally calling on the Archbishop of Canterbury to repent of all of this and uh, is being very vocal in that. How long has this rift been brewing in the Anglican Church? Yeah, so the, the Kigali commitment itself actually says that for the last 25 years, uh, the uh, conservative, theologically conservative Anglicans have been speaking out. Uh, here in this country, uh, it was in 2003, uh, that the Episcopal Church, which is the Anglican uh, manifestation uh, here in the United States, ordained its first openly gay uh, non-celibate uh, bishop. And so really for, I'd say, the last 25 years, going back to the late 1990s, conservative Anglicans have been raising the alarm. And they, they mentioned this in the Kigali Commitment. And they, uh, they like you said, they call the uh, Church of England and the Archbishop to repent. 
And what's worth noting, Jody, in their statement is they don't initially talk about issues related to same-sex marriage or homosexuality. They actually mention the authority of God's Word, and they say the things that we're seeing regarding sexual ethics stems from an actual undermi uh, undermining of God's Word itself. And they see that as the most important issue that they're drawing attention to. And so they really are threatening a major schism in the third largest denomination in the Christian world. And again, this is a, this is a significant uh, a moment, uh, really, in the, church, uh, in the church history. Well, no doubt. And I, I, I love the way that you describe how they're approaching this. Uh, you know, we, we no doubt we have a lot of Anglicans who listen and watch this program, but we also have a lot of non-Anglicans. And so let's kind of bridge this between the Anglican community and the non-Anglicans who are joining us right now. Is this somehow an example, this 85 percent who are rebuking really the leadership? Is this a uh, an example of those of us who embrace a biblical worldview, how we should respond when the LGBT activists or whatever demand that we compromise scriptural truth and endorse their view of marriage. Yeah, in short, Jody, what, what these conservative Anglicans are saying is the Church of England's decision to bless same-sex marriage, uh, again, they're, they're not even officiating, but, but by even just going to, to say you're going to bless same-sex marriage, that's a massive theological statement that the Bible does not allow. And so what, the, what these theological conservatives are arguing is that the Church of England is stepping outside the bounds of what the Bible says God's design for marriage and sexuality is. And so, again, this is bold. Uh, these conservatives are already receiving backlash, uh, ironically, <laughs> from Western powers. You have these African and Asian bishops uh, receiving receiving all sorts of scorn from the West. Uh, but you're right, Jody, this is an example of what it means to, to take a stand. Uh, Jesus himself promised in John 15 and 16, if you, uh, as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And at the end of the day, Jody, what this is telling us is it's a clear signal that at least these theological conservatives are saying we can't go beyond what the Bible allows. And that's what all of us as Christians, regardless of the issue, we stand on the authority of Scripture and Scripture alone. Well, David, I want to thank you for staying on top of this issue. This is one of those issues that probably is going under the radar for most people. And thank you for staying on top of it. Thank you for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. Thank you, Jody. All right, friends, coming up, we've got a new report from the CDC. I'm just telling you ahead of time, you don't want to miss what you're about to hear. A new report says that about one out of four high school students now identify with one of the letters of the alphabet of LGBTQ+. We'll go behind the scenes and discuss this. We'll be right back after the break. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. Watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org. 
Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free, factual news stories and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged, be in the know, and stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. All right, thank you for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss. Glad to be with you this Friday evening. And thank you for being on board with us. It's our honor to bring you the highlights in the news from a Christian worldview perspective. All right, this week, the CDC released uh, some results from its youth risk behavior survey. Uh, This is uh, something that they do every couple of years, and basically they poll young people on questions about different topics like sexual activity, substance use, uh, mental health, and the like. Well, according to this survey, nearly a quarter of high school students ages 14 to 18 Nearly a quarter of them now identify as one of the letters in the ever-expanding alphabet of LGBTQIA+, whatever we have in there. 25% of our high schoolers identify with some aspect of this. This is like double what it was in 2015. But my question is, how accurate are these numbers? Who are they surveying? And what message is the CDC attempting to convey through all of this? Well, joining me now to discuss this and more is Irene Erickson, the Senior Research Analyst at the Institute for Research and Evaluation. She served for three years on a national panel of consultants to the CDC-supported Community Preventive Services Task Force and their uh, meta-analysis study on sex education effectiveness. In fact, she was the secondary author of that published report. Irene, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. Just a minor correction. I was one of many secondary authors, so (laughs) 
I don't want to take more claim than or credit than All right. I do. Uh, Thank you. A point Thank well you taken. Thank you for that. All right. Well, let's get into the details of this uh, this report. Uh, just let's just out of the gate. What's your basic take on this latest CDC report? Um, okay. The the Youth Risk Behavior Survey is a survey that's been done nationally for uh, decades, and um, it's it's a credible survey. It's something that is administered directly to um, high school students. They an, uh, respond anonymously. And um, so I, I'm not inclined to question, you know, the validity of the numbers. And, and I think we, you know, the, the question is maybe what is behind these numbers or what is causing uh, students to respond this way and, and the change, the, the dramatic change that you described. Um, the first thing I think that's important to note is that um, for some reason, that year, the survey apparently did not ask about transgender identity. So we don't know in that 24% what uh, portion would be represented by a transgender, kids that are identifying as transgender. The percent that identifies gay and, or lesbian is actually only 3, 3%. And so that, that gives you a, a little bit different. Uh, there are other categories, one of which is other. So unspecified. Another one is questioning, or they question their sexual identity. Uh, another category is bisexual, meaning they would consider themselves both heterosexual and homosexual in their uh, sexual attraction. So I think fleshing out those numbers is a little bit helpful uh, because at first glance, it makes it look maybe a little more dramatic than it is. Um, well, it's, it's extremely dramatic. I, I, and. And I guess I would disagree with you on that. I do question these numbers. I mean, in the first place, you've got a number of uh, Christian and private schools that probably opted out of this thing. Uh, you have a number of students that probably felt as though uh, their their parents should uh, best handle some of these questions. And I, I think no doubt some of this would skew some of the data coming out of the gate. Uh, but then you look even at, at, at other countries, the UK, for example, uh, they only have, I think it's like 8% of their high schoolers claim to be uh, in, involved in one of these, identify as one of these numbers, and yet massively different numbers here in the United States that raises all sorts of question marks with me. And you're saying it doesn't raise any question marks for you? Oh, no, no. No, I, I think you misunderstood me. Um, I, this is very different than it was uh, six years ago, as you noted. And that is important and dramatic and needs to be understood. Um, I think that what's accounting for the biggest change is in the categories of bisexuality and other and questioning. And those are, you know, large numbers added up. And so I think we need to, we do need to ask, why is this shifting so dramatically in such a short time? So I, I'm in agreement with you there, 100%. Well, I also question this because this is the, let's just keep in perspective, this is coming from the same CDC that provided all sorts of misinformation during the pandemic. And that was their area to rely upon science and protect the American people. And they provided all sorts of information that was misleading at best and certainly not accurate. And of course, now we're learning more and more of that, that, that even in that instance, it was politically driven rather than scientifically driven. And I wonder if there is some sort of additional motive uh, 
other than science in this research that they're trying? Are they trying to sway? I guess is a word I'm going to. Are, are they trying to sway public opinion and to make this look as though it is much more embraced than what it actually is? Or am I missing the boat here? Um, you know, I, I can't I really respond to the CDC's motives in this. I do see a trend in the social science uh, research generally that it has become highly politicized. So I would understand your raising those questions. I think that the, the questions that are, uh, you know, that need to be looked at are, you know, the fact that the, the gay or lesbian category didn't hasn't changed that much, but the other categories have. And we see this. You mentioned internationally, like in England. In in England, the number of transgender uh, teenagers has skyrocketed in the last ten years, and that's mostly uh, because of a dramatic rise in the number of teenage girls who say they are identifying as transgender. So there are other indicators that this category, this LGBT category, has shifted dramatically in recent years. And some people are arguing that there is a social factor going on here, a cultural factor, the internet, the messages that kids are getting about sexuality and about um, sexual identity. And I think there's some good evidence for that. So that's kind of how I'm seeing these numbers is that there is a change that has happened that is corroborated by other sources other than the CDC. They see it yeah, in well, England, in Sweden, in, and, you know, even a Gallup poll that was taken recently showed a 900% increase in the number of, of kids or people identifying as transgender uh, in that same t time period. So um, I think what I am interested in as a social scientist is what is accounting for this dramatic change. Well, I think there are several factors that kind of stare us in the face with this. There is an outright indoctrination attempt uh, of this type of uh, uh, belief system to our children. I, I mean, we're watching it from as young as Disney, uh, you know, children all the way all the way up. There's an indoctrination. There's social contagion, as you mentioned, that's taking place. There is outright attempts to confuse children of their gender and all these different uh, things and. Uh, you know, and and there may be even a, a desire to, uh, you know, it, you, you have special rights in this country these days if you are some oppressed class. And so even possibly the attempt to create uh, a minority sex class to, to then be oppressed and get special rights. Who knows what's going on? But there are certainly attempts to indoctrinate and, and to confuse children. And I believe all of this is extremely alarming. Um, I, I wish we had more time, Irene. I, I do have another guest that's waiting, so let me uh, thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate you so much joining us on Washington Watch this evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. All right, let's uh, let's keep going on here. Uh, Meg Kilgannon is is joining me now. Um, she, of course, is a senior fellow for education studies here at uh, the Family Research Council. Meg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tony. I'm sorry, right. Jody. Jody. Uh, you're close enough. Jody, <laughs> Tony, we're both here uh, every week. So listen, Meg, thank you for joining us. Uh, all right. Uh, give me your thoughts on this CDC study, this report that's coming out. 
Well, the the CDC numbers are alarming, right? And as as a parent of a public school student, all of our kids graduated from public schools. I'm familiar with this survey instrument. Uh, in our county, it's given almost every year. I know that the CDC data is collected biannually, but many, many um, counties collect this data every year. And so um, we, the, the, the kinds of questions that are asked um, can seem from a parent's eye a little bit leading. And um, the other factor that I think we're not discussing enough, sadly, is the just absolute epidemic of pornography that confronts children in our society. And the fact that a lot of these identities are, um, are a reaction to children being exposed to pornography at younger and younger ages. Because when you, when you ask children about their, their sexual identities in this way, many of them are making claims about who they are um, and attaching, you know, a sexuality to that when they've never even shared a first kiss or had any sort of meaningfully emotionally intimate relationship with another person. And so in that regard, I think that these, these um, statistics can be very much overblown. Um, and yet we do need to be concerned that children are willing to identify themselves in these ways and, and wonder why exactly is that? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely concerning, but I mean, there's no question what you just said. We are over-sexualizing this generation, uh, beginning with uh, young children. I mean, yeah, and and then we have, I guess, one question, uh, just kind of a yes or no kind of thing. Should the CDC even be studying this at all? Is this the role of the CDC? I mean, we're, aren't they supposed to be just studying, like, contagious diseases and that type of thing? Why is the CDC even doing this at all? Do you have any idea? Well, the justification is that uh, you have children who are presenting themselves in a, a pediatric care setting, maybe with a sexually transmitted disease, right? That's that's the justification for studying these kinds of behaviors um, and, and asking these questions. Um, but the, the real... Um, the real problematic part of it is what you alluded to earlier, which is the politicization of this. Of course, we don't want children to be to engage in sexual activity too early and to have a sexually transmitted disease, obviously, right? But the idea that you're going to justify huge governmental expenditures, and I, I wish that Irene had been able to speak to this because when she had studied a, a major sex ed curriculum in the United States that claimed to reduce un, unwanted pregnancy, unintended pregnancy, and sexually transmitted diseases, they, it failed on all those measures in the areas where it was studied. The reported incidents increased with the use of the sex ed program. And so, you know, that is the kind of thing that where government just misses the mark. And we all as parents and concerned citizens about where this country is going, we need to pray for our children and our grandchildren, and we need to have meaningful relationships with them. Parents and grandparents need to talk to their grandchildren and children, understand, try to understand them, share your life with them. Uh, try to be interested in the things that they're interested in and and just let them experience authentic relationships in their own homes and communities so that these inauthentic relationships that are presented online aren't nearly as attractive. 
I think that is really, really good advice, and I want to go into that a little bit further because when you when you look at the uh, comparative, uh, and these kids are in school a whole lot more than they are around the dinner table with their families. And these days, we know so many families don't really any longer have that special dinner time as right. a family. And and yet at the school, there is this constant barrage of these kids being indoctrinated. They've got the social yes. pressure. They're they're being confused with all the uh, sex ed education type stuff that's coming down. You got all this bombardment on television, on radio. Uh, you're you're just say you're a grandparent, a parent uh, for the very first time, uh, and that you're dealing with this stuff. What advice do you have for parents and grandparents, perhaps confronting this for the very first time? Well, you know, our children are not growing up in the world that we grew up in, and they have access to technologies that that provide them with images that we would never even have imagined would be seen. And they are seeing these things at very, very young ages, at formative ages. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that. And, and, and um, you know, as much as we try to protect our children from those images, there is a billion-dollar pornography industry that is coming after our children with their messaging. And so we need to be really, uh, you know, explaining to our own children the beauty and the wonder of God's plan for human sexuality. And we need to be sure that we're modeling happy married life in our own homes for our children. And in the cases where children are not growing up in this environment, we need to be honest about the crisis in the family that exists in many communities and in our own homes. And we need to engage those people positively with, a, with, with the love of Christ and, and our own witness of our own happy lives in response. Absolutely. Meg Kilgannon, thank you so much for joining us this evening on Washington and Watch. Always great to see you and always great to talk with you. Thank you, Jody. All right, friends, that's uh, that wraps it up for this edition of Washington Watch. I want to thank you for joining us. Look, our kids are under tremendous pressure. Now is the time for us to pray for us. As Meg said, unite our families around truth and speak openly with them. Hope you have a fantastic weekend before you. God bless you. We'll see you next week right here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.